The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Week number three of a series we're doing called Taking Spiritual Inventory. Examine yourself. Taking Spiritual Inventory. Examine yourself. Why are we doing this, Pastor Cliff? Because God told us to do it. Do we need any other reason? No. So in obedience to God, his command, his word, God says this repeatedly, to examine yourself, to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you truly are a Christian. Or if you're just a professing Christian, but you're not really regenerate or born again. And you're a deceiver or pretending playing Christianity, or maybe you sincerely believe you're a believer, but you're not because you're deceived. You're you're blinded because you don't have enough of the truth of God's word to enlighten your understanding, or maybe you're supernaturally blinded and deceived by Satan himself, or you could be deceived by your own sin and false teaching or whatever else. So God knows it's in our best interest to examine ourselves, to take spiritual inventory every once in a while on a regular basis as a spiritual discipline. In line with scripture is the plumb line. That's how we take the diagnostic test to see how we're doing, to check our spiritual health. Every field does that. To You, you check your spiritual health at the doctor or whatever, maybe once a year. For the vital signs, we're just checking vital signs, that's all. It's a healthy thing to do. Don't be afraid to do that. Okay, wait a minute. Wait, is there a pulse? Oh, okay, there you go. you got to put your finger in the right place. I was getting concerned. Uh, checking my vital signs. So that's all we're doing here in obedience to God. So this, as I said, this is part three uh, in our inventory. The emphasis in the first part of the series here on taking spiritual inventory is, is asking one question, are you saved? Are you a Christian? Because that's Paul's question. That's God's question in 2 Corinthians 13, where he gives the command. Examine yourself, says it twice, command to see if you're in the faith, to see if you really are a Christian. And then after that, we'll continue to examine ourselves in a couple of different ways to see not only are we saved, but now that we're confident that we're saved, now we're going to examine ourselves to see are we growing in the faith? Are we maturing or are there impediments in the way? Do I have, I'm a human being, I have a heart, my blood is flowing, my heart's pumping, but it's kind of irregular and uh, some of my arteries are clogged. We've got to make sure they're not. We've got to get that cleaned out. So that'll be Part two of the series, as we continue. Uh, those of you who were not here last week or the last two weeks, you'll need to catch up. We're in the middle of this series. You can do that by going to YouTube and checking the sermons there online. So we'll pick up where we left off last week, taking spiritual inventory. Uh, part three, uh, are you saved? And we, I think I would have 17 points last week. We got through the first three. The first three, which was good because it was kind of a unit and it was really asking one question. Do you know the gospel? Do you believe the true gospel? And do you trust in the gospel and only in the gospel for salvation? Or do you trust only in Christ's atoning work? That is the person of Christ, his life for 33 years that was completely sinless, also his life as deity, eternal, almighty God and his fulfillment of the law and obedience perfectly to of what God required through the law, and then finally, uh, the work of Christ, the reason he came, that was to die on the cross, to be punished by God the Father, to absorb 
the full fury of God's infinite eternal wrath upon himself as a substitute for sinners so that they wouldn't have to absorb all of God's wrath so that they might be forgiven. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. That's his greatest work. That's why he came. That's why he's the Savior, because he loved sinners. And then he was buried, died and buried and rose again from the dead in fulfillment of Scripture, raised himself really from the dead along with the Father and the Spirit, and then ascended back into heaven. And Jesus reigns on high as sovereign Lord of the universe right now, literally alongside the Father uh, as the great high priest and the sovereign Lord and the judge and the Savior, and he will return someday to judge every soul. And then when you die before he returns and you breathe your last breath in this life, you immediately appear, your soul does, in full conscious cognizance before the one who created you, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to give an account to him where he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the glory of my Father and in his presence in heaven for all eternity. Or... I never knew you, he will say. So there's only two judgments that he will render. I never knew you because you never bowed the knee to me, Jesus Christ, and he consigns those people to eternal damnation in hell, which is also conscious forever as just punishment for rejecting Christ. So that's the gospel. So we went through the gospel. Uh, Now we're going to pick up on question number four and following. And we'll just see how far we can get as we do this inventory of self-examination a couple other words of introduction before I get to point number four. I've had a lot of good interaction questions, feedback from the previous two sermons from all over the place, from all across the spectrum. And I want to respond to four briefly because I thought they were great questions. And if a few people asked them, that means probably a lot of people are thinking these very questions. So they represent a lot of folks probably going through your head. Maybe you were hesitant to ask about it, you forgot, you were afraid to, whatever. So there's just four questions I want to answer that I got in the last couple of weeks. Number one, because we took communion last week, we went through uh, spiritual evaluation, inventory, examine yourself in light of scripture. And then immediately after that, we had communion, which was appropriate because 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, here's communion, here's what it means, here's what we remember and celebrate. But before you take it, Christian, professing Christian, examine yourself. Examine yourself and don't take communion in an unworthy manner. And if you're not really a Christian, born again, regenerate, and you take communion, that is very unworthy. And you are subject not just to the chastening, but the wrath of God as an unbeliever violating communion. So don't take communion if you're not saved. Examine yourself. Or if you're a believer, examine yourself. And if you've got sin in your life that you haven't dealt with and confessed yet, you need to get clean and right with God before you take communion. Otherwise, his chastening hand will be pressing down on you. So Paul warned us, you need to examine yourself before you take communion. Somebody's question as a result of that was, should I take communion if I feel guilty at the time of communion? Now, the bigger implication was that I made them feel guilty by my 40-minute sermon. That's reality. And I made them feel guilty because I was preaching the Bible. Newsflash, the Bible makes me feel guilty too, just so you know. Because it's a perfect, almighty, holy God. And we are the exact opposite of that, right? Compromisers, sinful, wicked, evil, self-centered. So question, should I take communion if I, if I feel guilty? Well, uh, yeah, you should, if you're a Christian. Even if you feel guilty, as Derek always reminds us, uh, no, you sinned this week, you probably sinned this morning, you can still take communion. Uh, So there is a time to take communion as a Christian and time not to. If you feel guilty when you're about to take communion, the issue is where's the guilt coming from? It's coming from somewhere. 
And guilt is a gift from God. You might want to write that one down. Because the world says the opposite. Freud said guilt is bad. Get rid of it. Snuff it out. Deaden it. If you have to use drugs, do that. No, guilt is a gift from God. As guilt is to the soul and the spirit and the conscience as physical pain is to the body. It's a warning mechanism. So if you have guilt, you've got to figure out, why do I have guilt? Is it legitimate guilt or illegitimate guilt? It might be illegitimate guilt because I am wrongly informed and I'm misunderstanding Scripture or I don't have enough of Scripture. Or it could be legitimate guilt letting you know, ah, 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 sin, compromise, blind spot, or unconfessed sin that you know about. So when you get to communion and you feel guilty, see if you know where the guilt's coming from. And if it's a sin that you're aware of, then you confess that sin while you're holding the communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I'm sinful. And um, I was uh, in an argument with family members yesterday, and I had a wrong attitude. And the Bible says, uh, be angry, but sin not in your angry Lord. And I I violated that because I got angry but I sinned in my anger, so Lord, forgive me. Thank you for dying for my sin. Now, then you have cleansing, and you can take communion. So if there is guilt, find out where the guilt is coming from. And if you can find out where the guilt is and confess that sin, then the Lord welcomes you to his table to take communion and celebrate that forgiveness because of his death on your behalf. Number two, I got this from a few people. Whoa. Got to be careful what you say up in the pulpit. Pastor Cliff, you said you didn't know if you were saved, end quote. first time somebody said that to me, I was like, no, I didn't say that. But when the second person said it to me, I was like, ooh. (laughs) What did I say? Well, you can check the tape. That is not exactly what I said. Uh, There's some qualifiers there. Pastor Cliff, you said you didn't know if you were saved. That isn't exactly what I said. I said, ultimately, that's a key word right there. Ultimately, I don't even know that I am saved. What I mean by that is, I could be self-deceived. Like the people in Matthew 7. That's the point. At the end of the age, at the time of judgment... Jesus is judging every soul, and he's judging believers who are truly know him, and they enter into heaven. And then there are those who think they're Christians, and they're professing believers, and they think they are going to heaven. And Jesus lets them know, I never knew you. And they argue with him. But we did miracles, and we prophesied in your name. They were self-deceived. They truly believed that they were saved. So... All I was saying when I said that ultimately I don't even know if I'm saved, what I'm saying is I could be self-deceived. That's a possibility. The balance to that, and we're going to see that, is if I am truly elect, and I don't want to drag election too much into this because that will be confusing, but if I am truly elect, and not only elect, but I've been regenerate, born again, and I'm a Christian, and I have the Spirit of God living in me, as I examine myself, In light of scripture, that's going to confirm my assurance of faith. And I'm going to grow in confidence that I know the Lord. And it will be a blessing to me. So you don't need to be living in fear. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not saved. That's not the goal. Uh, Number three. Uh, Is God a deceiver? I got that question because I said there are at least three ways you could be deceived. Because you could be a, a professing Christian who actually is not saved, and you don't even find out till the end of the age when Jesus tells you you're not saved. You've been deceived the entire time. How tragic. I said there are three forms of 
deception. One was out of ignorance, you just don't know enough. Second form of deception was Satan, who is the deceiver, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He blinds the minds of people so they don't believe in the true gospel. Satanic deception. And then also there's self-deception, which is sinful blindness from our own sin, which is blinding. Then the question was, well, is God a deceiver? And I just say, no, God is not a deceiver. The scripture never calls God a deceiver. It calls Satan a deceiver, Antichrist a deceiver, deceiver and false teachers deceivers. Uh, so let me clarify what I mean by the word deceive. That would probably help. What I mean by deceive when I'm using this, that you're self-deceived. Deceived? By deceive, I mean to distort the truth. That's it. Simple definition. By deception and deceiving, I mean to distort the truth. Proactively distort the truth. And we would all affirm, if you're Christians, God doesn't distort the truth, right? Ever. He reveals the truth. He illumines the truth. He enlightens the truth. He gives the truth. He defends the truth. So by deception, I mean to distort the truth. Uh, God never distorts the truth. Does God withhold truth from people? Yes. Does God withhold truth from people out of judgment? Yes. So that's a big difference, withholding truth versus distorting truth. Question number four, uh, this was probably the most popular question. Uh, Why do I feel so challenged or uncomfortable by this current study we are doing? That makes sense. That makes sense. Why do I feel challenged or uncomfortable by this current study of taking spiritual inventory, examining myself, uh, that we are currently doing? There's a lot of answers to that. I don't even know what the answer for you is. It could be the, well, that tells me you're listening. You weren't sleeping during my sermon. Amen, that's awesome. I got a reaction. I hit a nerve with the Bible. That's what I wanted to do. The Bible does that. That's what truth does. Truth always creates or gets a reaction. Uh, Or maybe you feel this way because uh, you're getting new information from the Bible. It's always possible. And maybe you're, oh, this is new. And sometimes a lot of new stuff is uncomfortable for us, right? I'm not used to this. I'm not used to examining myself as an ongoing Christian discipline. I've been a Christian for 25 years, and I've never done this as a regular Christian discipline like I do with giving and prayer and confession, whatever. Uh, Well, it needs to be added to your arsenal of regular, ongoing Christian disciplines and virtues because God said it needs to be. So that's possible. You're getting some new information. It also could be uh, that you don't practice this regularly in your life, and we're forcing you to do it, or God wants you to do it. Uh, it could be that you have a blind spot, and maybe it's been exposed, and, ooh, makes you feel guilty, or maybe you don't like that, or maybe you didn't like it so much in the last two weeks you didn't come back to this church. Which has probably happened. Which actually is not a bad thing. I said that last week. Boy, that, that reveals everything, doesn't it? God says, examine yourself. And somebody leaves and said, I don't want to examine myself. I don't want to listen to God. Oh, wow. There you go. There's your answer. Um, it could be that... Oh, here's these aren't all negative. Why do you feel challenged, uncomfortable, um, off-kilter maybe, standing on one leg little unbalanced, that's, that's not a bad place to be in. Maybe it's because you're sensitive to God's word. That's a good thing, isn't it? Now, if you had a seared conscience towards God's word and you don't feel, you're just callous, that's not good. That's horrible. So that actually could be a, a healthy sign. You are very sensitive to God's word and what he requires. Uh, one more, maybe you feel this way because you want to be obedient 
to God's word. Here's what God requires. Man, I don't do that. Or I don't do it consistently all the time. Perfect. Do any of us do God's commands perfectly all the time? No, none of us. Does that frustrate me? It frustrates me. I know the standard. I don't meet the standard. And I'm a pastor and teach the Bible, so I'm supposed to meet the standard. Some people tell me or think so. <laughs> it's like, what a horrible feeling that is. So those are great questions. Maybe you have more. In light of that, uh, why we're doing this, God wants professing Christians to examine themselves for at least two reasons, and they're real simple. I didn't mention these yet. God wants professing Christians, not Christians, professing Christians. You might be a Christian, you might not be a Christian. God wants professing Christians to examine themselves for at least two main reasons. Number one, so that the unbeliever won't be self-deceived thinking they are a Christian. In other words, God wants you to examine yourself to eliminate false assurance. To eliminate false assurance. Reason number two, God wants us to examine ourselves, professing Christians, so that believers will be strengthened in their faith. That's the converse. That's the exact opposite. If you're a Christian, you're truly born again, you've got the Spirit in you, a lot of these principles, they're going to resonate with your soul deep within. And God's going to do his work, and he's going to confirm you and strengthen you and give you assurance in a way that only he can. So that's why God wants us to examine ourselves, so that believers will be strengthened in their faith. In other words, to bolster assurance. So those are the two reasons. Why are we examining ourselves? To eliminate false assurance and to bolster true assurance. Only the believer, only the regenerate Christian can have true assurance. If you're not a Christian, you're not born again, you don't have the Spirit of God living in you, we can go through all these principles and you can try to understand them intellectually and say, ah, yeah, I agree intellectually and whatever, but if you're not born again, uh, you are never going to have supernatural security and assurance that God gives as a promise to his children. Only we as true believers can know that and celebrate that and bask in that great confidence. Only God knows the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Only God knows the heart. Man looks at the externals. Only God knows the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. And so ultimately, it is the, the Holy Spirit's job to give us assurance, to give true Christians assurance. It's his job. How do you know that you're a Christian? Well, first and foremost, it is the Holy Spirit's job to assure you, to give you confidence that you truly are a Christian. Get this, if you're a child of God and a Christian, God wants you to have assurance. God wants you to be confident that you're a Christian. Isn't that encouraging? God, that's what he wants. He's not your antagonist. He's not your enemy. He's not trying to slip you up or trip you up. He wants you to have confidence and assurance. He wants you to, to know in a very subjective, personal, real way what Jesus said, that if you're one of mine, you're in my hand, you're in the palm, and no one can snatch you out. Security of the believer. Vital Doctrine, assurance. Uh, Romans 8.16 says that very thing. It's a promise to Christians that if you've got the Spirit of God in you, then you belong to God. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ living in you, then you're not a Christian. If you, are, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, then the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to enable you to cry out to God, the Savior, the Creator, Abba, Father, I belong to you, Father, at the most intimate level imaginable. That is supernatural assurance and security. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
So last week, for those of you who were here and heard those first three points on the gospel, and they resonated, every one of those with you, it's like, yeah, I know the gospel. Yes, I believe the gospel. Yes, I'm committed to the gospel. Yes, I am not seeking salvation outside of the gospel. Then you, sh- you should, that should have bolstered your assurance. I know God. You can take uh, joy in that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the ministry as you live in me to give me confidence of my faith in you, that I am secure in you. That's what this is supposed to do for the true believer. So you're not blown here and there by every false wind of doctrine, or you're not blown here and there in an unstable manner by every little trial and big trial that comes your way in life. God is your rock, solid foundation that gives you stability no matter what. Uh, and as a result, that kind of assurance is you've got, you're not afraid of anything. You're not afraid of death. You're not afraid of trials. You're not afraid of the devil. You're not afraid of the future. It's a supernatural way that God can give you literally peace of mind, resting in him, which is his promise. That's what he wants for you and for me. First uh, John 2 says the same thing. It's the spirit of God's job primarily. You have an anointing from God if you're a Christian. That's not some kind of charismatic, mystical thing. You got the anointing. Come get the anointing. No. All this means is if you're a Christian and truly born again, you already have an anointing. You receive the, the anointing is the Holy Spirit living in you. That's the anointing. And that happened the moment you believed in the gospel and got saved. And it is permanent while you live in this life. So every Christian has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And, and John says, if you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit living in you, you don't need somebody to teach you that you know God. It's not an intellectual thing only. There's a supernatural, real personal ministry deep within your soul that the Holy Spirit does on your behalf to reassure you you belong to God and you know him personally. Beautiful passage, 1 John 2. And then finally, why are we doing this? Well, God wants us to do it on a regular basis. And as a matter of fact, God has given us three entire books in the New Testament for the sole purpose of examining ourselves as professing Christians. Three books. Shout it out. Name Anybody know the three? Can anybody name one of the three? Three entire books written for the purpose of examining ourselves. You said? Okay, somebody said Hebrews. Good answer, good answer. uh, Derek has been preaching through that, and he keeps coming back saying we need to examine yourself. Are you on the fence? Are you on the fence? Are you on the fence? Uh, That's purposeful. That's why the author wrote those 13 chapters. Somebody said James. Answer number two. 100 people survey. Top three answers on the board. Number one, Hebrews. Number two, James. Exactly. The first New Testament book written. It is explicit. Uh, that's why it was written. Professing Christians, you need to examine yourself in light of God's word and the book of James. And one more you said, First John. First John. John's gospel was written that you might know what salvation is. That's the purpose statement in John chapter 20. And then a few years later, John wrote, First John, okay, now that you're a Christian because I wrote my gospel, now I'm writing to you professing Christians to give you eight tests to examine yourself to see if you truly are saved and growing. That was the purpose of the epistle. So this is not a minor point. Uh, this is not some deviation from God's priorities. With that, let's go to point number four. After you clearly understand and are committed to the gospel, ask yourself the following questions as you take spiritual inventory. Number four, do you hate your sin? Oh, can we use the word hate? Is that, can I say that, Pastor Cliff, in the, in the church? Hate, yeah, because it's in the Bible. Psalm 5 and many other places. Do you hate your sin? Do you loathe your sin? Do you despise your sin? Uh, I don't want to say do you despise yourself, hate yourself, whatever. People get confused and 
oh no, you need to love yourself and all that stuff. Anyway, but this is clear. You hate your sin, you own it, it's, you're responsible for it, it comes from you, it issues from your heart, your soul, your mind, your words, your actions, you're accountable for every part of it. Do you hate your sin? As a matter of fact, you've got sin living in you. You don't just commit sins. I don't just commit sins. We have sin living in us, even if we're born again and Christians. We have the Spirit of God living in us. And Paul makes it clear you have sin living in you as well that wants to act out. And it will. And we've got to restrain it. Stay on top of it. But do you hate your sin? Because if you do loathe yourself at times, your sin, and you look at yourself in the mirror and say, oh, this is despicable. I, do, I violate God's word here. I don't fulfill God's word here. Oh, wretched man, woman that I am. That's actually a good thing. You have a sensitive conscience. You should hate your sin, and that's what Jesus meant when he said, deny yourself. Before you can be saved, you've got to deny yourself. This is right out of Jesus' theology. Be humble, says the Old Testament. Humble yourself. Recognize your sin. That's what that means. Uh, hate your sin. Uh, God defines what sin is. The more we understand God's glory and his sinlessness and how much he's worthy of it, and the more we understand the majesty of Christ, the more we will hate our sin. So one of the signs of maturity for a Christian in your life is that as you grow older in Christ, you will hate more and more your personal sin because it's an utter offense to your Savior, your blessed Savior, and God, your Lord. That's a mark of maturity. So if you feel guilty and hate your sin, don't think, oh, I must not be saved. It's No, your, sensi- your, your conscience is sensitive to the things of God. That's a good thing. So we should hate our sin. Paul said he hated his sin in Romans 7, 14 through 25. Uh, Isaiah said he hated his sin, Isaiah the prophet, as he saw the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. What he meant by that? That's an idiom for I am a filthy sinner before a holy God. Luke 5, 8, when Luke saw the glory of Jesus Christ do a miracle and his deity was unveiled right in front of his eyes, Peter was overwhelmed with guilt by the holiness of Jesus Christ and fell down before the Lord Jesus in Luke 5, 8, and he's, as he's laying at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So, Do you hate your sin? If you do, that's a good sign. Number five, is there spiritual fruit in your life? Is there spiritual fruit in your life? The question isn't, is there fruit in your life? Because we all have fruit, don't we? We all do. And by fruit, we mean that which is tangible or empirical. It is manifest. We can see it, whether it is through... uh, your inner attitudes that are invisible, that manifest themselves through body motions, rolling of the eyes, whatever you do to get angry with a wrong attitude or a good attitude. It's a manifestation of your heart. Uh, or it could be the fruits could be the manifestation of the words that come out of your mouth. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Hebrews 13 talks about the fruits of our speech. Uh, It could be actions that reveal your fruit, whether it's good or bad. So everybody produces fruit in their life. I'd say action fruit and attitude fruit. Those are the two categories, action fruit and attitude fruit. And it's manifest in different ways in how we live our lives. The question is, is it spiritual fruit or evil fruit, fruit from the world? What James or Paul calls in Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh. Everybody's producing fruit. What does your fruit look like? The question is, are you producing any spiritual fruit? That's a good way to just look at your life. Okay, here's what the Bible says fruit looks like. Good words, good deeds. Uh, You know, we want to protect the gospel so much that you're saved apart from works. Good works can't save you. Well, uh, 
good works are legit and they're from God and they're a gift from God and God wants us to do good works. That's Ephesians 2.10. You were saved to do good works. So if you're saved for the purpose of doing good works, then there should be good works evidence in your life. So look around. Do you have any good fruit coming out of your life, your attitude, your ministry? And do others around you see good fruit? Other Christians, other discerning Christians who are biblical, do they see fruit in your life? So you get a perspective. Oh, okay, thank you for telling me that. Thank you for blessing my soul. So look for that spiritual fruit in your life. Uh, James 2.26 said, Faith without works is dead. If you don't have any spiritual fruit in your life, you're probably not saved. Matthew 7.17, Jesus himself said, Every good tree, every believer, every true Christian, every regenerate soul, everyone, without exception, without exception, Every good tree bears fruit, present tense, continually. You will continue to produce good fruit because of the Spirit of God working in you as a Christian. If you say you're a Christian and you live a life and there's a pattern of no good fruits, then Jesus basically says, and James, "Mm, you're probably not saved. The Spirit of God doesn't live in you, so the Spirit of God cannot produce these fruits. So what is the pattern? So that's a good way. How do you know? How do you examine? How do you look for fruit in your life? Really, what you do, I think, is you look for patterns in your life. And that, that requires time. You look for patterns of behavior, patterns of speech, patterns of attitude. And the more time that goes on, the more objective is the observation and analysis. So look for patterns of behavior. Do we mess up? Yes. We all stumble in many ways. That's what James says, even as Christians. So, you know, a hiccup here and there, yeah, that's understandable. But what's the general pattern of your life? As we said last week, it's the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life. What is the trajectory of your life? That's why it's patterns. That's why the present tense verb in so many of these imperatives in the New Testament is monumentally important because the present tense verb is speaking to patterns of behavior, an ongoing lifestyle. So that's a good way to look for fruit in your life. Do you have spiritual fruit being produced in your life? Number six, do you love God's truth or do you desire God's truth? Which is another way of saying, do you love God's word? Do you love God's truth? Do you love the Bible? Do you desire the Bible? The prospect of reading the Bible, studying the Bible, meditating on the Bible, just sitting down by yourself and and reading Scripture as God reveals truth. He reveals history to us, not just theology, but how things really are. He gives us an interpretation of life from his point of view, from the only real point of view. Do you have a desire to feed on God's Word? The Bible's clear that you need to if you're a Christian because this is your spiritual food. It's literally food for your soul if you're a Christian. The Bible says it is milk for your soul and meat for your soul. Just like if you have breakfast every day for your body, you have dinner every day, you have food every day, you have water every day. Try to deprive yourself of those three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days. You're not going to live long. You're going to become famished and start losing nutrients and become unhealthy. Same thing with a Christian needs an ongoing intake of the Word of God in some way, some degree, Be creative. Stay on top of it. If you create a habit and pattern of not doing that, you're going to get caught when it's too late. You're going to shrivel up. You're going to be deceived. You're going to be blinded. You're going to become uh, insensitive. You're going to get a hardened conscience. Even as a Christian, that's possible. You're vulnerable to that as 
am I? Do you have a love and a desire for God's word, for the Bible, for truth? Do you love truth? Sometimes you tell people the Bible, and they say they're a Christian, and the Bible says this, and they resist. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, wow, it's plain as day. Then you don't believe truth. You don't believe what God said. Yes, I do. I believe in the Bible. Well, I just read the Bible to you. So do you have a desire for God's word? That's Peter, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. What does a new, brand new baby want? One thing, milk, 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 mommy. That's what this is saying. It's got to be desire that comes from within, and that's why Jesus said, Matthew 5, 6, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You could put the word truth in there. Blessed are those who continually hunger and thirst for God's truth, which we find only, by the way, this day, in the Bible. So if you long for God's word for biblical truth, that is a good sign. The psalmist, there were so many verses in Psalm 119, I couldn't even write them all down. I just chose one. The psalmist who loved God's word, uh, Psalm 119, he said, I long for your precepts, that's the word, written word of God, and I trust in your word. In light of that, if you're a Christian, you should long for God's word. Here's the question to do some self-evaluation. When was the last time you read your Bible? Don't say it out loud. Because it's you, it's between you and God. When was the last time you sat down, you and God and His Word, and you just let Him speak to you through Scripture? If you can't remember, that's a yellow flag. If you think it's been too long, then you can remedy that. You don't have to be a legalist about it, but it's, oh, yeah, I need my vitamins, and I need uh, pure milk from God and His truth, and meat from His Word. To sensitize my conscience and straighten out my twisted, self-centered, perverted thinking. Because that's what happens when we're left to ourselves, right? So, do you love God's word? If you do, that's a great sign. Number seven, are you submissive to God's commands in Scripture? So, it's one thing to love the Bible. And, yeah, I read the Bible, I study the Bible, I memorize the Bible. Because there are people, it's an academic exercise that they find fulfilling and satisfying. And you can do that even if you're not a Christian. Maybe you just like to study and gain information and amass data, as Paul talks about false believers who are always learning and never arrive at the truth. They are always learning, and he's talking about spiritual truths. Always learning and never able to come to the truth. That is possible if it's just strictly this academic, one-dimensional exercise. So you love God's word, you desire God's word, you take it in, and then you act on it. That's number seven. Are you submissive to God's commands in Scripture? Uh, Psalm 119.44, I will keep God, I will keep your law continually. God, when I hear your word, written Scripture, I will keep it, I will obey it, I will submit to it, I will do it. That's the mark of a believer. You're submissive to God's commands, and you're submissive to all of God's commands. Here's a question for you. Don't answer out loud. Uh, which of God's commands are most important? The little ones or the big ones? Oh, be careful how you answer that. Lying or murdering? Which one's more important? Hopefully you didn't say murdering. Uh, all sin is unrighteousness. The wages of sin, and that's any sin, is death. It's all an affront to God. So all, all of God's commands are equally important in a true respect. So you're reading through the New Testament, and God says, you need to do this. You need to obey. You need to do this. 
you're not doing it, so you're living in sin. You're being disobedient. Oh, but that's a, that's a little command. Everybody else does it. Ah, it's not as big of a deal. Well, at least I'm not uh, committing murder and committing adultery. Whoa, that's the wrong attitude. Every word of God, all of God's commands. Submissive. We need to welcome the word of God, even when it uh, challenges us, even when it affronts us, even when it shocks us, even when we find it scandalizing. We need to wel- if that's the word of God, we welcome it as the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. That's the word. They welcomed it. Give it hospitality. God, tell me more. God, remove my ignorance. God, remove my blind spots. Jesus said, point blank, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There it is. Commandments, plural, all of them. What's the New Testament? It's a summation of Jesus' words that he gave to his apostles. Many of those words are his commandments. We believe all of it. We submit all of it. You have a resistance to God's word and God's commands that reveals your rebellious heart. Number eight, are you submissive to authority? This is authority in general. Are you submissive to authority? This would be Romans 13, 1 Peter, and many other places, Daniel chapter 4, etc., etc., Daniel 2. Are you submissive to authority? 1 Timothy 2. That means uh, Romans 13 says there is no authority that exists on planet earth except that which has been established by God. So this is how God created the world. This is reality in which we live. It's a hierarchical structure. Well, some people don't like that. They don't like the word hierarchy. They don't like the idea of authority and submission. But it's a reality. It's in 1 Corinthians 11 as well explicitly. that There's a clear eternal hierarchy that God has set in place. Did I say eternal? I did. Eternal, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 11, with respect to the role of the Father and the Son even moving into the future and the role of the church. But we live in a hierarchy, an hierarchical, that's hard to say, uh, hierarchical society. Meaning every person here has many authorities above us in every area of life. At home, there's God-ordained authority. If there's a mom and a dad, then dad is the leader of the home. He's not superior as a person, but it's in terms of his function and role. We know that. It's clear. He's the head of the home. The parents together are the head of the, of the children. So there's hierarchy in the home. There's hierarchy in society. I have to obey the street lights. Go on green. Stop on red. Respect the authorities that God has ordained, the political officials, the mayors, your boss at work, or maybe you are a boss and maybe you have somebody over you. You need to submit to them and then you have people under you. You can't get away from it. You play sports, the referee is your authority. Your coach is your authority. The assistant coach is your authority. The rules of the game are your authority. Uh, The commissioners who run the institution, they are your authority as well. The score clock is your authority. The score book is your authority. Your piano teacher is your authority. You can't get away from it. It's everywhere in our life, and that's why a Christian's attitude is we know, first and foremost, that God is the ultimate authority. All other authority in life is delegated from him. It's limited authority, specific authority. Everybody's accountable to him, but it does come from him and provide order and harmony and unity and peace within the society in which we live with a bunch of sinners and self-centered people such as we are. God has established this hierarchy of authority and submission, and the Christian understands that. This is basic to the Bible. 
So your attitude is you're not a rebel. You don't resist authority at every turn. Good litmus test is what do you think of the police? And I mean just police in general, generically. Well, Paul talks about it in first, uh, in Romans 13, and Peter talks about it in his epistle as well. Your attitude is submission, respect. God has put authorities in place to preserve society. Military, police, government officials. Their job is simple. It's to protect the innocent and punish the wicked. And they don't necessarily focus on those as much as other things illegitimately. But nevertheless, if you're a Christian, your attitude towards authority is you are submissive. You have respect for elders if you're a younger person. That's basic. It's in the Bible all over the place. You respect the leaders in the church. You respect your Bible study leader. And on and on it goes. Number nine. Uh, do you love Christian people? Do you love Christian people? Jesus said in John 13 and John 17 explicitly, uh, all men will know, unbelieving world will know that you, believers, are my disciples, you belong to me, if you love one another. That's a, an external apologetic for the unbelieving world. Is they're looking on at the church. They're looking on at these Christians over at these professing Christians at Creekside Bible Church and they get to know you and say, oh, did they get along? And or is there dissonance because they're backbiting one another and fighting and like alley cats? That sends a testimony to the world. They're confused. Oh, so that's what God is like. That's not a pretty picture of God. Rather, if you're a true Christian, your heart's desire is to love other believers because you see them first and foremost as someone like you and me who we were lost and then we got saved and then we were adopted spiritually into the family of God and we didn't deserve it and we don't belong there, but in his grace he's put us all there. So now we are literally brothers and sisters in Christ and we need to love each other. I, I have nine older brothers and sisters, nine. I didn't even grow up in a Bible-believing, born-again home and I loved my siblings growing up. All ten of us, we got along great and we, we still love one another. That's just a, a natural affection, how much more true Christians should love other believers. That's one of the blessings to travel the world, and, uh, as we have done, had opportunity, and those of you who have had opportunity for church work or whatever, and, or even just you're traveling around the world, and you find a church in another country, whether it's India or Honduras or Russia or China, and, uh, the UK or wherever you go, and you find a a real church with believers, and, and you just have this instant connection with them, this instant affection that is so deep, nothing that the world can even recognize because your relationship is in truth, the truth of God, in uh, personal allegiance to Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're in the family of God. What a testimony that is of this great reality. Do you love Christian people? Paul wrote to the Philippians, a church that he planted, pastored, and then is writing to them, and he just this beautiful little phrase. He talks to them, and he he was their pastor. He knew they were uh, they were fallen. Some of them had some serious problems, and nevertheless, his statement is, "I have you in my heart. I love you. I love God's people." That's the heart of a true shepherd. So, hopefully, that's your heart's desire as a true Christian. Number ten: uh, Do you desire to be with God's people? So, it's one thing to say that you love. Oh, yeah, I love Christian people. I love fellow believers. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I just don't want to be around them very much. Really? Yeah, no. I've, I've got agoraphobia, among other hang-ups. Really? Yeah. Well, what's, what are you going to do in heaven with uh, the gazillion people all over the place crushing in on you? 
Are you still going to have agoraphobia in heaven? Hiding out in that corner over there? I don't think Jesus is going to let you do that. There are some professing Christians, they don't desire to be with God's people for whatever reason. Um, but you need to. I put their birds of a feather flock together. Just so you know, that's not in the Bible. It says birds of a feather flock together, and then it says 1 John 2, 18 and 20. So, no, not in the Bible. But 1 John 2, 18 through 20, you're supposed to look that up on your own and see the truth there that confirms this, that if you're a true believer, you have a desire to actually not just uh, tolerate God's people, but actually be with them. As I was gone on my sabbatical, one of the growing, burning desires that just kept growing over time was, man, I can't wait to get back to Creekside and be with God's people. I want to get back to be with my spiritual family. Who are you hanging out with? Who do you spend most of your time with? Who do you invite to your parties? Whose parties do you go to? What do you have in common with the people you're hanging out with? It's not God's people. 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. Hebrews 10, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You can't encourage one another and fulfill all the one another's unless you're together as God's people. You've got to gather. You've got to meet face to face. You've got to interface with one another. That is what the word ecclesia, church, means. Literally, did you know that? The, church, the word church, it means gather. It means assemble. Not, not YouTube. Not Zoom. It means Assemble, literally, gather, the word church. And there, there's a supernatural promise from God in Ephesians, and also in the Old Testament, that where his people gather collectively, and I'm not talking about Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, that has nothing to do with what I'm saying. It's a, the book of Ephesians. It says where God's people gather, there is a corporate indwelling for, of the Holy Spirit among God's people. Which makes sense, because if every, every true believer has the Holy Spirit, and every true believer is bringing the Holy Spirit to that gathering, the more true believers you have, the greater presence of the Holy Spirit is there, and you can see it, you can feel it, you can be blessed by it. What's a good reason to be with God's people, going to church, going to Bible study, going to fellowship, is because the literal presence of the Holy Spirit is compounded on a corporate level. Why would you not want to be around that? The immediate presence of the supernatural Spirit of God. What an awesome reality. Humbling as well. Well, we'll stop there. We got, look at all those we got through. All the way to number 10. I know some of you were doubting. No, many of you are doubting. Probably three more. No. I actually think we can do 11 through 18 next week. Looking forward to that. And keep sending those great questions as you have been doing. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and pray and thank the Lord for our time together in his word and worship. Father, we do thank you uh, for this day, for the Lord's day, for the privilege to look to your word, to scripture, which you have preserved over the centuries perfectly by your grace so that when we read it, we can trust in it. Thank you for all of your commands. Thank you for enabling us to understand them and through the indwelling Holy Spirit to actually obey them and actually please you. And experience the joy of fulfillment in obedience. And we know that that's one of the means you use 
to strengthen our assurance that we belong to you. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that enables our spirit within to cry out to you, Abba, Father, we love you, and we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.